Welcome to episode 144 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. This is the episode that uh, we weren't actually sure we were going to have, but uh, so much has happened since we last uh, uh, released an episode that we uh, felt obliged to do a quick news roundup, uh, even without an interview. So uh, uh, today we are lawyers, uh, truly lawyers, talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today... Um, uh, by Maury Schenk uh, in London, uh, uh, by Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, who's uh, the chair of our uh, class action practice. Uh, we're also joined by Meredith Rathbone, uh, who is our partner in our export control and sanctions practice uh, and who has been deeply involved in the Wassenaar negotiations over uh, international export controls on cybersecurity products. Uh, and uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We ought to jump right in. Uh, uh, before we get to the uh, sanctions issues that have been raised by uh, uh, Russian hacking uh, and interference with U.S. Uh, electoral processes, uh, Maury, uh, the ECJ also made a bunch of news, the European Court of Justice, uh, um, by essentially taking on a U.K. case and saying data retention uh, uh, in bulk uh, raises serious problems and probably illegal. Is is that basically what they said? Yeah, the, it's the continuing cutback of EU data retention. There was a directive on this in 2006 responding to some attacks in Madrid and London that was implemented by 2009 and was very controversial. Um, and then in 2014, the ECJ came out and said the directive is invalid uh, on some procedural grounds that there were not enough protections for the bulk data retention in the directive. But the national legislation that was implemented in, in the directive, a lot of it stayed in force. A lot of some, some countries lifted it or the courts lifted it. Some countries left it in force on the basis that they said their national law had those procedural protections. And that uh, there was there's been a few ECJ challenges, one in the UK and one in Sweden, one in Greece. The consolidated cases for the UK and Sweden were just decided on December the 21st. And they cut it back further and said, National data retention legislation may only stay in place if there are uh, three things. One, it must be limited to serious crime. Two, before access for the purposes of serious crime, uh, there has to be a judicial process or an independent administrative process to authorize access. And third, retention has to be within the EU. And so that's going to result in some further invalidation or changes to EU national data retention law. So it, 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 this was pitched, as you'd expect, because of the biases of the uh, the journalists, as a disaster for uh, uh, the Regulatory uh, Investigative Powers Act and uh, uh, for bulk retention. But what you're saying sounds as though they basically approved bulk data retention as long as there were some restrictions on the conditions under which government could gain access to the uh, the data after it had been retained. Yeah, that's right. The uh, new Investigatory Powers Act and the, the DRIPA, which was in for- still in force until the Investigatory Powers Act comes into force, 
are not valid under this decision, but the UK Parliament can change them and probably will in a way that will continue to allow retention to happen for serious crimes. So with, the, 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 uh, reason, the reason people were one – of, one of the objections that people had to the Investigatory Powers Act is that uh, you, could, uh, you could use it to find out whether uh, um, uh, people were engaged in a variety of pretty modest offenses, uh, uh, and that all falls as a result of this decision. Yeah, one of the things that's striking about the UK communications data legislation is things like fire services and tax services and others can get access to data through a very simple process, and that will not be able to continue. But, uh, but more serious crime retention, um, my prediction is the law will change and it will continue. And uh, in theory, I suppose the law could stay on the books and just be unenforced to the extent that it is a violation of uh, the European uh, uh, Charter. Um, a, but uh, uh, given that it's a parliamentary system, we can probably expect an actual modification of the law. Is that right? Yeah, I, mean, I think the law will stay enforced. It's a much broader law, most of which is not sub, not has not been successfully challenged. So. Uh, I think it'll just stay on the books as it is until Parliament changes it uh, and then will be enforced in its new form if that change happens. Okay, and the the other big news uh, has to do with the uh, um, uh, Russian interference with the U.S. election, the allegations pretty well established that the Russians hacked the uh, uh, the Democratic National Committee and a variety of other uh, uh, individuals uh, associated with the Democratic Party. Uh, um, the, um, the Obama administration concluded um, and their intelligence agencies concluded that this was ultimately done, or at least the leaks were done, to uh, assist uh, Donald Trump. And uh, that conclusion has gotten Donald Trump and some of the people around him very upset with the idea that uh, um, their election has been delegitimized in some fashion uh, or that this is an effort to do that. Uh, and that's made them question the uh, attribution to Russia. Uh but um, President Obama moving forward uh, uh, with that attribution has now imposed sanctions on a variety of Russian agencies. The Department of Homeland Security and FBI have released a, uh, a report uh, uh, specifying the kinds of uh, malware that uh, might be associated with those attacks. Uh, that that report has not been particularly well received, but uh, the sanctions uh, have met with a variety of um, objections. Some people think, um, I, I tend to be one of them, that this is not going to really deter the Russians if this is all that happens, because many of the uh, folks who are being sanctioned aren't likely to have uh, a, a, a particular bank account maintained in City Corp uh, in the name of Russian intelligence. Um, and so it's going to be hard to actually uh, hurt the Russian intelligence agencies who've been sanctioned. Many of the private individuals are pretty small potatoes. Uh, uh, but it's turning out to be rather more complicated. Uh, uh, other folks think it's too much, uh, and, and that may well be the view of the 
uh, incoming administration. Uh, Donald Trump has been deeply skeptical of the sanctions and the whole effort to attribute it. And by today or tomorrow, we may hear more from him after he's gotten a briefing on this. Uh, um, uh, but uh, for all of that, the actual implications for individuals, uh, for individual companies who are doing business uh, and trying to comply with the sanctions turns out to be pretty complicated uh, uh and um Meredith Mori uh, uh can you give us a sense of how the actual on the ground um implementation is going for companies that uh have to maintain compliance programs uh for US sanctions sure so I'll I'll jump in here and then I'll uh, hand off to Maury. But yeah, so this is what what we all knew that something was coming, right? The Obama administration had said something's going to be coming, and uh, they were we knew that they were looking at this executive order one three nine six four that was passed. Uh, it was the April Fool's Day executive order back from 2015 right. that was passed, you know, after the Sony hacks and actually had had not been used. Nobody had been sanctioned. And, and it didn't fit this crime. Uh, and it and and yeah, it was drafted. They, they apparently the lawyers in the White House and at the State Department were looking into whether it could be uh, read to fit this this uh, type of activity. And they ultimately apparently concluded that it hadn't, so they modified it. Um, so, you know, the, the, there are a few difficulties that companies will be facing. Um, you know, one is that, of course, they now have to conduct due diligence into Russia-related transactions to make sure that these people aren't involved in these entities. But they're already involved. doing that for because there's so many Russians on the sanctions list already, aren't they? Yeah, they are, but they now have to look for other you know other uh, other individuals other entities and it's and it's a it's a diff, it's a difficult thing in the russian economy because it's not always transparent who owns who and who has an interest in what so it's an additional headache um but but the bigger headache i think really at least in the short term is uh is is fsb and i'll i'll Maury, i'll let you talk a little bit about that yeah i mean fsb is one of the two agencies um that descend from the KGB. The other one is GRU, which was also on the sanctions list. But FSB has a number of commercial responsibilities. The big one for U.S. tech companies is probably that they review all the encryption registrations and licensing for sending encryption products to Russia and practically every hardware and software product or, or, or a large majority of them have some encryption on them these days. FSB is also responsible for managing uh, the lawful intercept system, which is called SORM for commercial communications companies. And any dealings with FSB for either of these purposes is now technically prohibited, which is a big headache for tech companies doing business in Russia. Yeah, because this is a, they're, they're both an intelligence agency and a regulator, right? Uh, and uh, if you uh, the sanctions presumably were intended to reach them as an intelligence agency, but if uh, American companies are prohibited from fi- making regulatory filings, they're going to get excluded from the uh, uh, the Russian market. Uh, you know, and one would expect OFAC to deal with this issue. There's a previous instance where an entity called something like Gosglav Expertise Russia, which had some project approval requirements, was sanctioned at an earlier stages of stage of the sanctions, and OFAC issued a general license for it. So one would expect them to do that again, but the complication with the Obama administration wanting to be tough 
um, may hold that up at least for the next few weeks. Well, and and and, and the the FSB has never been good at reconciling its regulatory uh, and. Uh, uh, intelligence, uh, responsibilities. I remember, uh, and maybe more you were involved in this, uh, when we were putting together that, uh, database of all the regulations of encryption around the world, uh, one of our, our clients kept saying, well, we need phone numbers. We need the phone numbers of the regulators. Uh, and, um, we got phone numbers for, for all the people who were in charge of issuing licenses except the Russians and, uh, finally found a phone number, uh, and in, put it in and gave it to the guy who was asking for it. Uh, uh, and he came back and said, uh, that's great. You know, I called the number and they gave me the answer. And then they said, how did you get this number? I, yeah. I, I, as though, you know, it was a state secret what the regulator's uh, uh, phone number was. And we hear to date that FSB will, we file a lot of these um, encryption we, we assist clients to file a lot of these encryption applications in Russia, but they won't talk to us. Uh, we, they will only talk to our local council in Moscow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, that's a good thing because we may not be allowed to talk to them anymore. Right? Uh, okay, um, and... Uh, the other the other flap that I should just mention briefly uh, is the uh, so-called Vermont Yankee hack. Uh, um, this falls out of the assessment that was done by DHS and the FBI. They included a whole bunch of signatures that you should be watching for that might indicate that you're uh, being attacked in the same way that the DNC was. Uh, uh, and if I'm reading this right, uh, shortly thereafter, somebody at... Uh, uh, Vermont Yankee, uh, who had been warned by Yahoo that uh, they had uh, uh, clicked on or at least downloaded a, a dangerous uh, phishing email, discovered that they had malware that matched one of the signatures on the laptop at uh, uh, Vermont Yankee. That uh, that got published first in the Washington Post as, oh my God, the Russians are hacking our grid, and then walked back bit by bit until it was really saying, well, somebody at Vermont Yankee had a laptop that had software on it that was um, associated with the attacks uh, that uh, uh, went after the DNC. Uh, that's significant in part because it shows how hard it is to produce these reports and get them exactly right, um, and also because we're starting to see the emergence of two different sets of facts on the left and the right. Uh, now the Democrats have rediscovered the Cold War and that uh, apparently uh, the 80s have called and uh, uh, President Obama has picked up the phone to get his uh, to get the uh, U.S. Uh, national security policy back. Uh, uh, the Republicans are questioning whether these are really serious um, attacks, uh, and in this case, the Washington Post walking back the story uh, has left us uh, left left people on the right feeling a little vindicated. Uh, so, um, more trouble for DHS and FBI in the future as they try to figure out how they're going to do attribution under the Trump administration. I ought to ask. Uh, uh, Meredith, the other story that I saw that came out right around the time, uh, right around Christmas time, was the report that Wassenaar had met 
and had more or less rejected U.S. efforts to uh, modify the rules that are trying to impose export controls on what's called intrusion software, but which turns out to be pretty much all cybersecurity uh, techniques. Uh, I, and I thought the story was a little more complicated than that. I thought I'd ask you, uh, uh, what actually happened at Wasna? Yeah, well, so... Um only the people in the room actually know what happened, but uh, but w- what's trickling out uh, is that most of the governments, the overwhelming majority of the 41 governments, um, had arrived at some uh, revisions to the control language that they were willing to agree to, particularly with respect to technology. Right. Um, and it wasn't everything that, that industry has asked for and that industry thinks is necessary to protect uh Cybersecurity, right? Um, but it was something, and it was a move in the right direction. And then at the last minute, uh, one government essentially held out and said, uh, "We're not agreeing to the changes." Uh, we so don't they know why, did, right? It could have been that they just why. thought, "Oh, this is not a, a regular process," or it could be that they uh, were feeling uh, political heat uh, uh, created by people who wanted to. Uh, take a tougher line on authoritarian governments hacking their citizens. Yeah, we we just don't know. Um, so they so did. That means, they did. That, that suggests that, you know, a little more diplomacy might actually produce more changes. Yeah, I think that, you know, my sense is that the U.S. government is planning to go back again next year. Obviously, it will be the call of the next administration, but, uh, but, but it seems that uh, the U.S. government has been, if not entirely aligned, you know, generally – in agreement that something needs to change, certainly on the Hill, um, you know, there is the nothing is, about the, the the Trump administration's uh, statements or or President-elect Trump's statements that would suggest he's going to be less aggressive. That's right. On this issue. Yeah. So we we all expect that this will be a battle that's fought again in in 2017. So there were a few tiny changes, nothing really significant, and we'll go back to the drawing board next year. So I, I and I can't help uh, uh, noting that Wassenaar just says it needs to be on the list and you have to you have to have a process for granting licenses uh, and uh, that was in and each country makes its own decision whether to grant the license right. that was insisted upon the, by the Europeans who for 30 or 40 years uh, let us control technology that they could then sell to Russia and the <laughs> Soviet bloc. Uh, um, and uh, they were delighted to have us have unilateral controls on a lot of our technology. I think we'd be delighted to have them have unilateral controls on their cybersecurity products, and we'll just grant a bulk license. Well, you know, that's a nice idea, but uh, the problem with that is that even U.S. cybersecurity companies deal all the time with people in Europe. They have their own yeah, yeah, people yeah. in Europe right. and elsewhere in the world and other Wassenaar countries, and so the problem with that approach is that then you've got uneven controls across 41 countries, and you don't know what to do, which is even more of a headache yeah. in some ways. I suppose. Well, you know, I, I see that. I, I, my guess is you can you're going to have uneven controls anyway, right? Uh, at some level, uh, each of these countries has its own set of policies and its own procedures for granting licenses. Uh, um, but it is certainly true. They have a lot of smart people working on this stuff in Europe who are employees of U.S. companies and whose contribution will be constrained because of fears that it might be exporting technology to uh, the United States or to Israel uh, just inside the company. 
Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a headache and, uh, certainly the U.S. government does not expect to implement the controls as is. They still haven't been implemented in yep. the U.S. and we expect that they won't be until they're improved. All right. And I suppose they could, you could always just tell all those the smart people you have working in Europe that they need to move to the United States yeah, exactly, in order yeah. to do the work, uh, <laughs> which, uh, you know, would be uh, what the Europeans deserve. Um, uh, some actual legal news. I, uh, I want to ask Jen Quinn Barabinoff uh, uh, as our class action expert to dig into the process by which class action settlements um, um, are actually implemented because, you know, increasingly it's clear nobody's going to get any money out of these settlements other than uh, the lawyers and some symbolic groups that get what they call CPRE um, uh, donations. Uh, and as you might expect, uh, it's a sort of um, center-lefty uh, set of groups that get it, and it's attracted its own set of um, uh, dissenters and carpers. Uh, so uh, why don't you tell us about the latest uh, dissent and carping? Sure. So um, the Google cookie, consu- uh, consu- cookie placement consumer privacy litigation uh, was a class action that was brought, nationwide class action that was brought against Google and others. Uh, this is because Google sort of found an end around uh, Safari's attempts to restrict access to uh, to data about their uh, people who are using their browser. Right. So, in other words, they found a way to evade the, um, the cookie-blocking uh, settings on uh, Explorer and on Safari. And so uh, that's the allegation anyway. And so as a result, they were sued under a variety of um, federal statutes, including ECPA, the Stored Communications Act, Computer Fraud Abuse Act, claims that carry statutory damages, um, as well as some other state law claims. Um, the case settled last summer, uh, at least in principle, and the terms of the settlement were unusual in that it did not involve payment of one, uh, did not propose to pay one penny to a class member, but instead uh, put $5.5 million uh, in, in a place to be paid out to various nonprofits, uh, but not... Uh, the way many structured settlements are structured, these CPRE awards happen if there is a residual. If there's a claims, there's a process for make, for class members to make claims, and the participation rate on these settlements is always incredibly low. Um, there are some statistics out there that say that in a lot of these tech uh, privacy settlements, the uh, the take-up rate is something like 1%. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, the, this always happens where there there is, a, or very often happens, where there's money left over. So the argument in this case was, Look, we're going to make this CPRE, these CPRE awards up front. Uh, let me let me stop you. CPRE is like law French for <laughs> pretty damn close, right? Right, right. As good as good as as, you, as good as you can get under the circumstances. And it, 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 it comes from uh, when when people. I, my memory is when you, when you die, you leave your money to a cause, and the cause has, itself has disappeared. Right. You kind of say, well, what's close to that right. thing? Right. Exactly. Basically, it's a trust concept, and so it's been applied in the past in class action but has been coming under increasing criticism, including uh, most noticeably from Chief Justice Roberts in connection with a case where the Supreme Court denied review, but he expressed some real concerns about uh, you know, the validity of this Oh, it's a, na- it's a nasty little scam, and it's, it's ripe for kind of uh, 
genteel corruption, uh, where people give money to their alma maters and their favorite charities, uh, I, and, and I think that's the allegation here. Right, although this case kind of shows that these things are always more complicated than they seem, okay? So, so the challenge has been lodged by this guy, Ted Frank, who is a serial class action objector. He is, uh, has an, a nonprofit that is called the Center for Class Action Fairness. It is associated with a competitive enterprise institute, not exactly a liberal, touchy-feely no. organization by any stretch, but he is out there in these consumer place cases claiming that these settlements don't benefit anybody but the plaintiff's lawyers, and specifically with respect to the Google settlement, he raised a couple kind of interesting objections. The first is that somebody on the plaintiff's steering committee is actually on the board of one of the mm -hmm. proposed recipients. Uh, the second is that the injunctive relief that they've negotiated, which is to get rid of this technology that circumvents the, the blockers, adds nothing to the relief that Google already agreed to in connection with its settlements with the, SE, with the FTC. Right. So that basically the the kind of in-kind, non-monetary relief is valueless, is basically his view. And then the last kind of really interesting point he makes is that, you know, the rationale for the advanced Cypre Awards is that basically the cost of distributing the money would eat up cost more than the amount that's been set aside. Right? Yeah. And his is, yeah. view is, look, well, if that's the case, if individual distributions are not practicable, then this should not, by definition, should not be a class action. Oh, that's sweet. That's clever. So it's sort of an interesting kind of broad. And I assume he's he's bringing this. I mean, CEI is kind of a free market organization. Right. So, so he's he's basically trying to shut down the, what I described as kind of a genteel corruption uh, scam. And the plaintiff's uh, bar, I think. Yes. The, the, However, what's interesting about this is that he also, what is kind of not necessarily discussed totally in the open, is that. You know, sometimes he really gets in defendant's hair. I mean, if you've got yeah. one of these things, there are times when a company wants to be rid of it right. and move on. And he is really a problem in that yes. regard. So, so even though CEI is pro-business, they, they ain't pro-these businesses. Well, or it, it sort of, I guess it's a question of sort of long-term, short-term yep. maybe too, in the sense that if, you know, if the case is allowed to be filed and it sort of continues forward, if you can't settle it, you're going to have to try it or something, right? right? So, I mean, <laughs> uh, so, you know, that, that's, um, that's how he can sort of really sometimes uh, get in defendant's hair. And all this is happening against the backdrop of uh, proposed amendments to Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 23, which sounds extremely boring, um, but actually one of the big focuses of the amendment process, um, proposed revisions are out for public comment right now, last hearings in February, but one of the big focuses is on the settlement objector process. Yeah. And um, they, what basically the rule, the proposed amendments are trying to get around are the process where plaintiffs reach a deal with a defendant and then another objector comes in and the plaintiff's counsel cuts a deal with the objector. So the proposed rule would preclude <laughs> paying money either to forego or withdraw an objection or an appeal. So this is tertiary genteel corruption where, where Ted Frank gets paid to well, go away. Well, so Ted Frank <laughs> kind of pretty consistently claims that he has not, doesn't get paid, but right. there have been some questions 
raised about that. This is, this so, is and all that makes it kind of interesting whether sort of will other, if these amendments go into place, will other um, uh, objectors die off and only Ted Frank live on? Or so here's what my, here, my suggestion is they should put it, they should take the amount, put it in $100 bills, put it on a pallet, and back it up to a really hot furnace and just burn it. Well, yeah, well, there are other suggestions out there, like a lottery, for example. So, so there are a variety of creative minds that work on this problem, too. All right. Well, this will be fun to uh, to watch it work out. Uh, and um, yeah, I think uh, uh, it's 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 it is genuinely sleazy process, uh, but it may be the only process that meets the requirements of you know nobody really wants to try the case because it's such a, a loser. But there is some violation, and to acknowledge it uh, means uh, you ought to uh, uh, do something with the money. But uh, you know, maybe you could give it to. Uh, uh, well, I'm not going to say AFT. Are you volunteering? No, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I tell you what, I, uh, I, if you give it to me, I promise I will burn it or otherwise dispose of it appropriately. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, thanks, Jen. Uh, uh, thanks also to Maury Shank and uh, uh, Meredith Rathbone. As always, the Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. Send your questions, suggestions for interview candidates or topics to the Cyberlaw Podcast at Steptoe.com or just leave us uh, a good uh, five-star review on iTunes or other podcast aggregators. Uh, that helps us get found. Uh, this has been episode 144 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, we have an exciting 2017 coming up, because really, what could be worse than 2016? Uh, so we hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.